Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ramblick. Thank you for joining me uh, for this particular podcast. Now, one of my career regrets over a long period of time was not having listened to a very senior accountant, businessman and regulator where he told me, uh, he thought he, uh, a, a serious history needed to be written about a certain part of business regulation in Australia. I wasn't ready to have that chat. At the time, it was mentioned to me, but it soon became apparent why it might have been because uh, that individual, who was also a mentor, passed away. My guest today doesn't have, I guess, the same need for as much regret because he's had an enormous amount of access to uh, an individual who's pretty seminal, pretty key to Australian history in the 20th century. Troy Bramston is a journalist and author who's spent a lot of time writing histories and he writes for the Australian as well, from, uh, features, commentaries and, and all that kind of thing. He's, pub he's written and Penguin Books has just published a biography of Bob Hawke that he spent a heck of a lot of time doing. It's a fascinating read. So I'll be exploring some of these issues with Troy about the way in which this came together, what he learnt about the this significant person in Australian political life and whether or not someone like a Bob Hawke would even make it as Prime Minister today, given the way in which society has changed. Troy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, look, it's a privilege to talk to you. I've been wanting to have a chat to you for, for a very long time, but this is a convenient and, and, a, and an appropriate opportunity to have the conversation. Um, before we dive into this, uh, there'll be those who scratch their heads and often ask the question, to who, who is Troy Bramston? Before we talk about the bio, how would your background look if you just sketched it on the back of an envelope to someone who's never met you before? Well, look, I've um, been working as a full-time journalist for the Australian newspaper for more than 10 years now. Um, and... I write across the paper. I focus on politics, but I also write about policy issues. I've done popular, lots of popular culture and historical things for the paper. Um, but before that, before I kind of went into journalism, I had a, a brief period, about a year, where I was writing columns for the Sunday Telegraph. But before that, um, you know, I've worked in politics, in the private sector, um, and I've worked as a speechwriter. I was a speechwriter for, for Kevin Rudd. I've worked as a policy advisor in government. I've worked for a number of industry associations. And so I think I've got a good sort of blend of, of experience. And in this kind of uh, new phase of my career, I guess, well, it's been going for more than 10 years now, I've sort of tried to combine all those things together. And of course, my academic background in the sense that I've got an economics degree with honours and a master's degree in politics. And I've always been, I'd always been interested in journalism and writing and uh, producing books. And so all of that has kind of come together and uh, feeds into my kind of journalism career and my uh, sort of side work, I guess, as a historian and as a biographer. But of, of course, it gels perfectly with what I do with The Australian. You mentioned that doing the histor histor historical stuff is a bit of side work. Um, why do you refer to that as that? Because in, 
Yeah, journalism in a sense is the first kind of history, right? But I don't see a difference between the two, other than one is a much longer and perhaps more permanent form. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my day job is as a journalist for the Australian newspaper. So they're the ones that pay the bills and, and you know, keep the lights on. Um, and when I do these big projects, whether it's a biography of Bob Hawke or Paul Keating or Robert Menzies, um, you know, I usually have to take periods of leave to do that, um, which may be just a couple of days a week here and there or a longer period for a month or two. And so the Australian's been very, very supportive and encouraging of, of that. And then, of course... You know, I've done this many times in the last 10 years now. I think I've published something like five books in six years. So I'm like literally half dead. Um, but other than that, it kind of works well for the paper, I guess. They, they get the exclusive news stories. They get the extracts. And so it's, it's good for them, I guess, to have me on board. And I'm, I'm very appreciative of the support they give me. There's also something called corporate history, which I don't think is valued much in media today, at least from my observations of some of the, the quality of, of, sort of journalism in different areas. Um, how important, if we just focus on journalism for a moment, how important do we actually have a, a handle on the history of the political history, the economic history of the country in order to be able to write about it with accuracy and with the appropriate framing at a given time? I think that's a really important question. And whilst I think we have many terrific journalists around Australia and in particular in the press gallery in Canberra, a lot of them are pretty young and probably don't have the corporate knowledge of politics, to use that term, or perhaps such an appreciation of history. So, I mean, I've, you know, I'm 46. I've started reading newspapers when I was 12 years old, I had my first newspaper subscription then. So I've always sort of followed politics from a very young age and been interested in it. And I'm very, very fortunate that, you know, I've been able to interview the last 10 prime ministers, um, either in office or out of office and develop relationships with them. So I've just had a thirst for our political history. And I've read a lot of books, I've read newspapers, I've gone and talked to people. And I guess I've kind of combined all that together. So when I sit down to write a book, I'm really probably starting with a, with a bit of a head start, I guess, because I have that sort of knowledge and that kind of memory and, and you, you put it all together and it becomes a, you know, a labour of love in the sense because that's what my um, deep interest is. And if you do it long enough, um, you sort of become part of that history and you become an eyewitness to it. You talk about and talk about it being a labour of love, but there's something else that happens when you engage with that, in a sense of immersion. Um, how do you, how, in terms of the Hawk biography, which I've gone part way into it because of, um, there's a lot in there, Troy. Um, it's a long, it's a long book. It's uh, you know six hundred and seventy something pages and. 70 pages of footnotes. So I don't expect everyone to have read it in the in the first week it's been out in bookstores, but go on. Uh, no, I, I understand that and I appreciate your uh, your tolerance for uh, those of us who haven't got to the end just yet. But this sort of work requires a higher level of immersion. Um, yeah, how do you, and also the capacity to 
this is a term that I'm, 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 I first saw used a lot in the accounting literature uh, when I began writing about it. How do you achieve a sense of fair representation? Yeah, that's an, another interesting question, Tom. Look, let me answer that in a couple of ways. Um, immersion in terms of doing the work is important. Let's just talk about that for, for a second. I found it really difficult to write about the 1960s or 1970s and immerse yourself in that era while you're also trying to keep an eye on contemporary political issues. And, you know, I write a column in The Australian every, every Tuesday, for every Tuesday and I write obviously other articles during the week. Um, I found it really difficult. And so I had to take time out. I had to kind of, you know, exit the present day world and immerse myself for weeks or days um, into that particular time period because it's, I found it very difficult. Now, others may be able to switch between writing about contemporary things and writing about historical things. I find that, I found that really, really difficult. The other question, I guess, the other part of that question, I guess, Tom, is in relation to how do you, you know, judge events and people in the past and not fall into the trap by using too much of a contemporary overlay over that. So this is another, another challenge, and I've had this with other historical figures as well. I think you must place the person in the context of their times. And so, you know, in terms of Bob Hawke's drinking and his infidelity and his emotional outbursts, which, is, which are the demons in the book, and that's a, a big part of the story, um, I have to say, obviously, that that behaviour is unacceptable by today's standard and by that standard in, when he was doing it. But of course, it's also worth noting that the media and the public generally had a different standard by which they judged politicians then than they do now. So it's both. I guess it's bringing a contemporary sensibility to something, but also not being too harsh in a historical judgment. Let me just make another brief point about that, because it's a good question. You know, when I wrote about Robert Menzies, I mean, his views about Indigenous people, about Asian immigrants were appalling by contemporary standards. And I'm, I noted that in my Menzies biography as well. But I also noted that he was born in 1894. And a lot of people in the 1950s and 60s when he was Prime Minister would have agreed with those views. However terrible they were, they were probably not uncommon in terms of having that kind of racial bias. Um, so we need to be careful. We can't, I'm not into cancel culture. I'm not into banning people. We need to understand them and explain them and having the context of the times, I think is important. And part of that, you to, coming back to that two-word two phrase, you know, fair presentation, to you, fair presentation in the context of a historical work is to ensure that the person is seen in the time in which they lived rather than coming at it from a, you know, uh, a modern, dare I say, moralising perspective, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you've got to be able to explain partly why, in the case of Bob Hawke, he is our most popular post-war Prime Minister, why he won four elections in a row, uh, why he had such strong public support. And partly that is because in terms of his demons, um, the public turned a blind eye or judged politician, politicians differently than they would today. Uh, so that is, that is important. And also, you know, just from a historical literary point of view, you want to 
bring people back to that era of the 1960s, 70s or 80s where, where most of the book is set um, and explain to them, you know, what it's like. And so I went to great lengths to explain what it's like walking around Parliament House or what Bob Hawke's office looked like or, or the fact that, you know, the media was very different. I mean, there's no podcasts when he's Prime Minister. There's no 24-hour news. There's no social media. Um, you know, the media landscape was very, very different. Uh, we had more newspapers um, and radio and television was more important, um, but it was very, very different to today. And I think the cable television didn't sort of hit until around about the mid-1980s, if, I, if I've got my timing right. That's, a, that's cable television. Yeah. Uh, well, we didn't have cable television here until the 1990s. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there was the big network television and there were the sort of marquee news programs. And so they were much, much more important. But, you know, Bob Hawke could give a press conference in the afternoon and, you know, by about 6 or 7 p.m. after the news has been on, there was really no news until the next morning. Um, there, were no, there were no live updates. Uh, very few things uh, happened. I mean, from time to time, radio would become significant if there's an, a big overnight event. Uh, but in terms of the call on politicians to respond to things, it just, it just wasn't there. Let's riff on that for a moment because that's actually a significant point. Um, are the words of politicians today valued less than those of the politicians in days gone by? Because, yeah. I... Because they are... Um, exposed more uh, given the, the way in which the media has grown? Yeah, I think so. But I think it's actually probably for another reason, Tom, and that is that we have less faith in government. Uh, we are less trusting of our political leaders. Uh, and that's because of a number of, a number of things um, that have happened over the years where we're less trusting of institutions that have let us down, um, whether in the private sector or the public sector. So, you know, we generally have a lower view of politicians, I think, broadly among the community than we did 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Um, but I also think it's, it's partly another reason, and a lot of contemporary politicians don't like, wouldn't like me to say this, but I think the standard of politicians has declined. I just don't think we have the quality of people that we had a generation ago going into public life. Now, John Howard and Paul Keating and Bob Hawke, who are generally regarded as significant treasurers and prime ministers who left a legacy, they too would find politics harder today. I'm not, I'm not doubting that. Um, but they seem to have good political skills, better political skills than their contemporaries. And they probably would have been able to adjust uh, better than their contemporary counterparts. What are the weak... What makes those three individuals stronger than in their political um, mindset, right? In, their, in, in the way they operate than, as you say, some of the, some of the contemporaries? Is it, is it the, the era through which they grew up? Is it the fact that they, um, they simply have a, a particularly high aptitude for 
thinking at that level? There's something to do with their personal performance? Yeah, look, I think they, the three of them actually came from pretty sort of modest middle-class, working-class backgrounds. Um, and I think that's important. And they were they kept in touch with their communities throughout their careers and kept those values close to them. But I think they learnt the art of politics. They learnt it. And this is actually important. I think it's somewhat been lost. Um, it, you know, they were able to communicate effectively. There's a number of elements to this. They could communicate effectively. They could, uh, they could develop articulate and implement policy that was lasting. Um, they knew how to run a government and operate as ministers. You know, they welcomed frank and fearless advice from public servants. They appointed high quality staff, often with a public service background. Um, and, and, and indeed, Hawke had four chiefs of staff or principal private secretaries, as, as we would call them then. And they were, the, each of them were drawn from the public service. Um, Arthur Sinodinus, of course, who was John Howard's long-term chief of staff, he was from the public service. Uh, Don Russell, who was Paul Keating's long-term chief of staff, he was from the public service. So there was a respect for the public service, a respect for frank and fearless advice. Um, there was, I guess, an ability that developed about how to run a cabinet um, by making policy really the focus rather than just day-to-day -day political considerations. So there are, there are a number of things, but I think that art of politics, whether it's you know, the public service and running a cabinet, whether it's communicating, whether it's having that political sensibility based on values, they just seem to be better at it um, than the last four or five prime ministers that we've had. Is that, does the, the, the way in which the news cycle, coming back to the fact we're both, we're both sort of media animals in one way or another, does the news cycle and the way in which the pace change pace changes quickly um, over over a 24 48 72 hour period have anything to to do with that yeah I, th I, th I think that it no doubt has has an impact I mean we now have a very fast-paced media cycle and the media are constantly asking politicians to respond to things and uh, social media though is is tricky to navigate for, for politicians. Because just because something is trending on Twitter uh, doesn't mean that it's resonating in the community. I mean, it, it, just, it just doesn't. But nevertheless, you can't ignore that medium. And if there's some kind of scandal or some kind of incident or somebody says something on Twitter, um, then often politicians have to take, in, take that into account and, and respond to it. And sometimes things that happen on Twitter, then, you know, we used to call it at the Australian reverse publishing. So... Some, sometimes something would happen on Twitter and then that would become a news story in the mainstream media. And we've got to be careful about that not happening too much and be mindful that Twitter is not a representative sample of the broader community. Um, but yes, there's no doubt politicians have got to navigate a much, much trickier media terrain than Bob Hawke did in the 1980s and early 1990s. You mentioned earlier that the book has gone Six, you know, 650, 700 pages. In your work on Hawk, what are the things that most surprised you when you started to delve into the specific material that was made available to you in writing the bio? Well, look, I mean, I, I sort of did an analysis when I finished the book, and I think I looked at something like 1 million pages of archival documents 
Um, I, I interviewed uh, more than more than 100 people for the book. I did a series of interviews with Hawk for the book. I looked at probably 100,000 newspaper articles. I mean, there's some boxes you can see, Tom, behind me there. There's others, others over here. Um, and, of course, a lot of it is digital um, in sort of this vast archive that I've assembled myself now. But, you know, I'd, my conclusion from all of that is that I think Hawk was a much more deeply flawed person than we thought. Okay, we knew about the drinking, we knew about the womanising, the emotional outbursts, but I chronicle those in more detail, I think, than anyone has before and identify how these were demons in his life that he was struggling against, the drink and the women in, in particular. And he maintained having affairs while Prime Minister in the Lodge, and a lot of people have been surprised by that. And I was able to interview people he had affairs with and put their stories on the record and chronicle some of his more outrageous drinking es escapades, which are frightening and appalling behaviour in public. Um, in the 1960s and 70s. But on the flip side, Tom, I found that he was probably a better prime minister than we thought, and certainly I thought. I mean, the policy legacy, as we know, is significant. All those big economic reforms, the float of the dollar, the dismantling of the tariff wall, um, the accord, all these things. And then in social policy, things like Medicare and the Sex Discrimination Act and the massive increase in upskilling and educating the Australian people the big environmental achievements, you know, that saving the Daintree or Kakadu and Hawke's role on the world stage as, as someone who well, dealt very closely with a lot of Cold War era leaders like Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Margaret Thatcher and played a role in ending apartheid in South Africa or saving Antarctica from mining. And so when I interviewed a lot of people and looked at the documents, he comes through as a very, very sig significant, successful and very effective prime minister, but a much more deeply flawed person. Would we have been deprived of an effective, um, significant prime minister if 24-7 media, social media, um, and the, sort of the citizen surveillance that goes on now uh, was around in his time. Yeah, look, I mean, well, Hawke recognised this himself in terms of the drinking. I mean, he was, I say in the book, a highly functioning alcoholic. Um, he had his first drink at the University of Western Australia in, I think, 1948 or 1949. And he still um, remembered he, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He remembered it. He had, a, he had a glass of beer at a second-year law faculty dinner. Uh, and then he was hooked. He was hooked on beer from that moment. So did, a, did, he, did he remember the brand he actually had or was no, it just I grog? Think, I don't think he remembered the, the brand, but it was a beer. And, of course, it broke his mother's heart because his mother was a leader in the Christian temperance movement oh, and she had signed up both her sons, Bob and Neil, um, to the youth wing, which was known as Band of Hope. And so he, he, it was instilled in him from a young age that alcohol was the devil's work and it had to be eradicated from society. So he broke his mother's heart and he became a highly functioning alcoholic with very, very often appalling uh, public displays of being drunk. Now, get back to your question, Tom, he, he understood that. And so in 1980, just before he was elected to parliament, he went cold turkey, went off the beer, off the grog, didn't have another drink uh, for more than 10 years after, until after the prime ministership because he didn't want to embarrass Australians on the world stage or at home. 
and he knew that it was not going to be acceptable to be drinking to excess like that. So, so he did moderate that aspect of his behaviour in response to what he thought were public expectations of a prime minister. Um, was that his initiative alone, or did he have a, a cohort of people around him that he was able to draw on to, to say, well, what do I need to do? No, he didn't. This is actually really interesting. I mean, he is a highly functioning alcoholic. He, he's got an addictive personality when it comes to alcohol, but he just gave it up. He was on his way to an ILO meeting in Geneva. And on the way there, he thought, you know what? I just got to give this up. I've just got to stop drinking. And he did. He didn't need Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't need a support group. Uh, he didn't need a period of detoxification. He just went off it. Um, now, for those who knew Hawk in the 60s and 70s, and, you know, I interviewed a lot of his trade union colleagues, his party colleagues, and even journalists like Laurie Oakes and Paul Kelly and Michelle Grattan, a lot of people thought he would never be able to do that. He couldn't do that. Um, and therefore, they thought he would never be prime minister. But the fires of ambition burning inside him were sufficient enough. So he gave up the booze, and that was a critical step on the path to becoming prime minister. I paid very close attention to the, the, the chapter you wrote about um, his, uh, for want of a euphemism, Troy, his, his Olympic grade standard of uh, you know, horizontal folk dancing. Yeah. Um, how, I mean, how did his colleagues put up with that? I, I mean, it, it, was it just tolerated because of the times or was it just tolerated because Hawke was brilliant and Hawke was Hawke and this was just, um, this was a feature, not a bug? Well, I mean, his womanising was on an industrial scale in the 1960s and 70s. Mind you, he's married at the time to Hazel Hawke and he's got three children at home. Um, he probably had affairs with hundreds, maybe thousands of women um, throughout his, his life. and. Often they would just proposition him out in public, you know, attracted to the charisma, to the power. He was the coming man in the 60s and 70s. Uh, sometimes he would proposition women himself. Um, you know, this was a big part of his existence. He lived a supercharged existence. And I say in the book he was a, a sex addict. And the World Health Organization has diagnosed something called compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Uh, and he had it. Um, and so this went on for a long time and uh, people were still appalled by it, but they witnessed it. They were aware of it. It was just who Bob Hawke was. The surprising thing to some people was that these affairs continued as prime minister. He, his former tourism minister, John Brown, said he, he, kept, he kept chasing women while he was prime minister. And he had a number of longer term affairs while he was prime minister and including uh, taking place at the lodge. And so some of his ministerial colleagues who I interviewed knew about this. Others didn't. Some of his staff knew about it. Uh, others didn't. So it's not on the Olympian scale, as you call it, as it was in an earlier era, but he still didn't give up the womanising when he became prime minister. And I should add, um, it continued even when he was married to Blanche. I mean, he wasn't faithful to her after the prime ministership either. Well... How does this play out 
and you may be we may be entering into a change in societal attitudes troy but when we when we look at things today when we observe the situations that we've seen with, with, with Minister Tudge and the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, you think about those current public points of discussion about morality and fidelity, and then you go back to to Hawke. And we've both we've both lived across the de across those decades, and we're only four years apart, right? In in terms of age, and I just scratch my head and think, what what has changed? Has society itself changed, or has there been a a more aggressive, more aggressive push to try and get better standards in in life generally and in, in public life particularly? There's no doubt, Tom, that public standards and expectations have changed. Uh, citizens, voters expect their politicians to behave differently than what they tolerated in the nineteen. 80s or earlier. And Hawke's not the only Prime Minister to have affairs in office either. And I, I note this in the book too. I mean, Harold Holt had a very, very famous affair and his mistress, as he called her, was on the beach when he disappeared in the sea, um, off Port Sea in 1967. So, you know, other Prime Ministers have, have had affairs. We shouldn't be shocked by that. But yes, public standards are different. There's another point to make about Bob Hawke, which is, which is really significant. We must take this on board. Bob Hawke never hid who he was. He never pretended to be somebody that he wasn't. He never lied about any of these aspects. In fact, he admitted his infidelity while he was Prime Minister in an interview with Clive Robertson on his Newsworld program on television. Um, now, we didn't know that he was having affairs while he was Prime Minister, but um, nevertheless, he never hid this part of his personality and he never pretended to be a social conservative. He never campaigned on Christian values or, you know, family morality. He, he never set himself up as a paragon of virtue. When you look at someone like Barnaby Joyce, who did lie about it, Barnaby Joyce lied about his affair with uh, Vicky Campion to Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull wrote that in his memoir that he asked him flatly, are you having an affair with her? And he said no. So Turnbull, you know, bells the cat on Barnaby Joyce. And, of course, others in more recent times have been caught up in scandals, largely because their behaviour has been unacceptable and appalling, but also because they've lied about it or they've hit it or they've tried to cover it up. Um, Bob Hawke never did anything like that. So it doesn't mean we accept his behaviour. It means he's different, though, to some of his contemporaries who have been caught up in so-called sex scandals. So it, on that point, what you, if I can use this term um, judiciously, mm -hmm. Hawke, in not hiding it, uh, is probably is probably more authentic than what we see a lot of today. Would that a yeah. fair observation? Absolutely. I mean, he was an authentic political leader. That's why people liked him, because he had, I guess, some integrity and credibility about who he said he was and who he said he wasn't. Um, and people liked that about him. He was open with his flaws. You know, it was 
he was a larger-than-life figure who the dramas in his life were lived out on television and radio and in the newspapers for decades before he became Prime Minister. Um, everybody knew Bob Pork well. They knew his flaws. They knew what he stood for. Um, he was who he, who he was. And there have been some comparisons made in recent uh, days to him and Shane Warne. I mean, another flawed figure, but someone who we all saw play out in real time and he never lied about or pretended to be somebody else. So um, people love them for that, you know, and I think people want to see politicians that are relatable, that are honest, um, and they can somehow accept their flaws if they've got great virtues. So Bob Hawke was a great trade union leader and he was a great prime minister. So people, I think, could kind of park the personal flaws and look to the good things that he did. Um, and, you know, we've just never had a Prime Minister who was more popular than Bob Hawke in, in the post-war period. Any project like this, Troy, uh, is intense, along with not only starting it, immersing yourself in it, and then doing what you're doing now, which is the you know, intense publicity effort. Uh, what do you do when you finish a work like this? You've done this several times before. What happens when Troy Bramston finishes a book? How do you, how do you disengage for a bit? Uh, well, look, it's very difficult, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I finished the book in kind of mid-December. Um, it wasn't published until the 1st of March. So you're kind of in this period where you're just waiting and nervous and expectant. It's like, it's like, I guess, having a baby or something like that. You know it's coming, but you don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, and you've put a lot into it and you've got a lot of expectations for it. So, yeah, look, I am nervous. I'm interested to see what people think about the book. Um, you hope that you haven't made any mistakes. Um, those things run through your mind. And, you know, what I've tried to do in this book is be fair and be balanced. And a lot of people trust me. You know, when you interview more than 100 people, Tom, or, you know, Bob Hawke gives you his diaries or letters that have never been published before um, and his notes as Prime Minister and things like that, um, there's an expectation that you're going to do a, not only a good job but a fair and balanced job. Bob Hawke wouldn't have wanted a hagiography, okay? When, we, when I talked to him, we went through everything. We went through the demons. We went through the achievements. We went through the failures. We did, we did the whole lot. So, but I think he would have wanted a fair and balanced account a truthful one that had integrity to it and was well researched and well considered so that is what i hope people will will discover in the book and and that they will learn something learn something new but um you know i, I dream of going to a um a tropical island and lying on a deck chair and and just relaxing but of course when you have a book come out that the publisher and yourself have invested a lot in you've got to do your best to get out there and and sell it so um, that's you know the phase that I'm in. I'm in now. What do you do to switch off from politics when 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 the workday finishes and you and you write? Well, what what's Troy Bramston's go to? Uh, well, look, I, I try to do a lot of reading. I mean, I, I read a lot of books. I mean, when I'm not writing a book, I'd probably read a book a, a week. Um, and m mostly that is actually politics but overseas politics British or um, UK uh, UK or American politics 
Uh, I don't read a lot of a lot of fiction. Um, and, you know, I watch a lot of television. I watch all the series that everybody's watching, all the popular things, um, and like to go to the movies. And, of course, I've got a young family, two teenage kids and a wife. And so your normal life goes on and you go to the soccer matches and you, you take your kids to their workplace. And um, there's lots of those kind of things that I do as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people kind of, I guess, uh, you know, are kind of surprised that you can, that I can sort of produce these books relatively quickly. I think journalism is a good training for that, that you, you work to a deadline um, you have a length that you've got to write to, you, you, you can get in and get and get focused. Um, but that means that, you know, Paul Kelly, my uh, great friend and collaborator said to me, um, the trick is to work hard and then to party hard. So um, I'm now got to focus on the, on the party hard part of, uh, <laughs> of writing a book. That that's uh, that's probably something to uh, something to look forward to. I've been talking to Troy Branston, the author of Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny. You'll find Troy's work on Indie Australian, as well as in any bookshop, bookstore, and any library in the country. Troy, thank you so much for being uh, kind enough to spend time with me today to talk about, I guess, journalism, writing a history, and and of course. The, the Hawk biography, which congratulations is out, and hopefully people will get a good look at it. Thanks, Tom. I've enjoyed it, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.